Thank you. Thank you all for being here. I could see, I could see you. This light is almost blinding, but not quite. No, let's keep it. Uh, so I'm going to bounce around and read a bunch of things, um, and then we'll hang out and talk. This is uh, one called A Cloud That Looks Like Jesus from a book called Good People. I leave the house because it's a better chance of getting killed off out there all at once. I'm sure the apartment I live in is killing me off, but it's taking its time so far, and it might take years to finish. Why I think this is my eyes always burn in the apartment, and I cough a lot. I try to remember to buy eye drops and cough medicine when I leave the house, but I almost never do remember. Why I don't remember is I think about getting run over by trucks or shot to death by hoodlums instead. I see the trucks speeding by and imagine what it would feel like to get run over by one. I'm sure it would hurt. I saw a movie once where a woman was run over by a truck and she lived on for about five minutes afterward. This woman was covered in blood and lying face up on the concrete after she got run over by the truck. Actually, I think it was a city bus that ran her over. But what difference does that make after you're already run over? Once you're run over, it doesn't matter what kind of vehicle did it to you. She didn't understand what had happened or why it happened to her. This is something I know all about. I don't need a city bus to run me over to not understand what happens to me and why. The list of things that I don't understand about the world can fill up four city buses, if not more. I shouldn't even get into it, so I won't, except to say that I don't know what it is in my apartment that's killing me. There's some kind of poison in there, coming in through the pipes, or up from the basement, or down from the roof. But I'd rather get into this woman whose legs had been separated from the rest of her, I think. I was trying not to look, so I can't say for sure what happened. It seemed that part of her had been severed, part of her was elsewhere. Maybe it was parts of her that were elsewhere. It wasn't what I wanted to see, as I don't like the sight of bloods, of parts, of ripped open innards. I imagine it'd be the same if I'm the one run over, that I wouldn't want to look down and see what parts of me had been separated from the rest. I'd rather look straight up at the sky. Maybe it's a cloud up there, a cloud that looks like something else, maybe a president or Jesus. I've never seen this kind of cloud, but I've heard other people do. I think that would be a nice thing to see after getting run over. This woman that did get run over, though, she didn't look up at the sky at all, let alone see a cloud that looked like Jesus up there. A young lady was trying to comfort the woman as she lay dying, the parts that remained intact. She cradled the dying woman's head in her hands. 
I wonder if I'd get run over by a truck if someone would do this for me. I don't think anyone's ever cradled my head before, so it seems doubtful they'd start then. This woman that got run over, though, she had a nice head, and I'm sure some people cradled it before the truck ran her over. People probably took strands of her hair and tucked them behind her ears. They probably smiled as they did this to her. This woman, it appeared as if she didn't want to get run over by the truck that ran her over. It appeared that she had better things to do than get run over by a truck that day. My thing is, most days, I don't have anything better to do. So if I do get run over by a truck, I hope this comes across to whomever might see me lying there. I hope they realize that this man had nothing better to do today, so it's just as well this truck ran him over. I hope they realize that this man's apartment was killing him off anyway, and that it was best to get it over with all at once. Maybe this will be the day that I finally do remember to buy eye drops and cough medicine. Maybe the truck will run me over on my way home from the drugstore, and the person that cradles my head in the street will go through my pockets for identification and find the drops in medicine. Maybe I'll ask them to pour some eye drops into my eyes so they won't burn as I look up at a cloud that looks like Jesus. Even still, I should think I'd like a hoodlum to come over and fire two rounds into my head rather than have the same hoodlum cradle me in his arms and then have this hoodlum pour eye drops into my eyes so I can look up at the clouds. I should think I'd like everything to end all at once and forever should it come right down to it. So to hell with the cloud that looks like Jesus. Sometimes when I do go out into the street and walk around, I try to eyeball the hoodlums to see if they're really as tough as they seem. See if they want to throw a couple of shots my way because that's preferable to getting run over by a bus, depending on their marksmanship. The list of what I don't understand might take up 12 city buses, but I at least know that much about the world. It's pretty grim outside for me to read something like that, right? I mean, so two days ago, I'm in Brooklyn, and it's 60 degrees, and I'm playing tennis in shorts and a shirt. And I looked that very afternoon at the weather up here, and I wanted to reconsider a few things. All right, let's um, shift gears a little bit and we'll read something called How to Direct a Major Motion Picture. Give the actor something to do, a piece of business. Get him moving. Have him smoke a cigarette or bounce a ball. Foster a collegial atmosphere on set. Encourage the minions to mix with the extras. Allow the underlings to stand near when you reference Stanislavski. Griffith, Meyer. Do not impose a dress code. Do not enforce arbitrary rules. Do not chastise a member of the crew for chewing gum during rehearsals. When marking up the script, make sure your handwriting is illegible. Do not let anyone look at your copy of the script. When reading the script, remember they are paying you for your time, your vision. They are paying you. Remember to have a vision. 
This is similar to an idea, only it's comprehensive. Always talk in abstractions, metaphors. Say out loud, this film is about an old lady knitting an afghan. It's about a child tying his shoelaces. Never call the writer an idiot when other people are around. Never use the words inciting action in any conversation. Do not call anyone by name, particularly the idiot. Instead say, hey kid, hey partner, hey sweet pea. At the table reading, do not sit at the head of the table for two reasons. One is, you are expected to sit at the head of the table, and it is always good to confound expectations. The other reason is setting the proper tone, fostering the collegial atmosphere. If the actor won't smoke, ridicule him. Do this in front of the cast and crew. Make everyone avert their eyes, shift weight from one leg to the other. Tell Star the shower scene will be handled with the utmost. Tell Star she has nothing to worry about. Ask the location manager if she's found a park with trees and benches in a man-made lake. Tell her there has to be a man-made lake. Tell the idiot he has to add an outdoor scene at a park with trees and benches in a man-made lake. Tell him people should be doing all the things one does in a park. A father and son flying a rainbow kite. Teenagers tossing a football back and forth. Married men meeting younger women. Recognizable everyday American people. Overweight women, futile exercise. Old men playing chess and sailing model boats on the man-made lake. Shit like this. Tell them the scene should be about a widower shopping for tube socks. If the location manager is attractive, communicate this in no uncertain terms. Tell her, you are attractive. Then see what happens. Never employ the word career in any conversation. Style your hair in such a way that it looks unstyled, unkempt. Wear glasses on the bridge of your nose, maybe a sweater draped over your shoulders. Take Star and the actor out to dinner. Take them to a quiet restaurant where you can hear one another talk. Make them comfortable. Connect. Reference Buddha, Vishnu, Martin Luther King Jr. and Sr., Elron Hubbard. Pretend to listen. Pretend to eat solid food. Note the lack of talent, chemistry, depth. Figure ways to use this. Recall a time when directing a motion picture seemed like a great opportunity. Recall a time before that when painting a picture seemed like something one could do every day. Do not discuss the film with a family member. Decide on a palette and communicate this to the cinematographer. Tell him every scene involving the dog should feel somehow yellow. Never say action when you want action. Say go instead. See the actor making this more difficult than it need be. Call him over. Put your arm around him. Call him son. Say, son, bless you. I can tell you all kinds of stories. I can reference this one and that one and some other ones. I could comfort you, shock you, cajole you, threaten you. None of this matters, son. Ask him, you know what matters, don't you, son? Before he has a chance to answer, shake your head and walk away. 
turn to an assistant if there is an assistant nearby and say can you fucking believe this guy never bellow for an assistant always keep antacids on hand otherwise tell the assistant to always keep antacids on hand compile a list of items the assistant should always have on hand and then it goes on like that for a while the movie is is excellent though you should all go see it I'm going to read the beginning of another one. This one's called Goodnight Maybe Forever. Today, I will hang myself in the backyard. I'm neither proud nor ashamed of this. Every day I do something, and this is what I have scheduled for today. Yesterday, I ate a peach. I hadn't had a peach in years, I don't think, since I was a child. The night before, I remembered that my mother would bring home peaches from the grocer whenever they were in season. So I put on my trousers, found a clean shirt buried under some newspaper, and walked to the grocer where I picked out the peach I thought looked best. I remembered to squeeze the peaches as I was trying to decide which one to purchase. I remembered that peaches could be too hard or soft and that neither was a good idea. My mother is the one who taught me how to pick out peaches this way. She said that someday she wouldn't be around to take care of me and my brothers and sisters, and someone needed to know how to pick out peaches. This never did happen, though. Mother was always around to take care of us, and I think she still is today. What I mean is, I think she's still around, not that she is still taking care of us. At this point, she probably can't even take care of herself. I imagine she'd have to be close to 100 years old now. I haven't seen nor heard from her in years. I tried not to think about my mother or who might be taking care of her as I was picking out my peach. There wasn't anyone around when I was testing the peaches, and for this I was grateful. I don't like to see anyone touching the fruit, and I'm sure they feel the same about me. The peach I eventually did pick out seemed to have the perfect texture and tone. I was, both, I was both pleased and confident as I walked to the cashier. After paying for the peach, I took it home so I could rinse it properly. My mother taught us how to rinse a peach under cold water. She said we should never rub a peach on our shirt because it would bruise. She said we could clean an apple that way, but never a peach. This didn't matter to me because I never cared for apples. My mother would bring apples home from the grocer, but I refused to eat them. I told her I found apples to be disagreeable. This always upset my mother whenever I said something like this. She said I didn't make any sense, that I was an idiot like my father. I didn't know what this meant exactly, if he didn't care for apples either. My mother was often upset, and my brothers and sisters and I always had to be careful whenever she was around, which was all the time. Mother never left us unattended. She didn't trust us. I don't blame her. I didn't trust us either. I considered saving the peach for dinner, but decided to eat it right after the rinsing. The first bite held great promise, as my teeth broke the skin and penetrated the inner fruit. As I started to chew, however, I realized that the peach looked better than it tasted. I tried another bite, 
thinking perhaps it might get better as I kept going, and it didn't. I felt cheated, as anyone could imagine. I felt as though as I left myself down, that I'd let my mother down, that I should have known better. I'm not saying this is the reason I'm going to hang myself in the backyard today. I've been planning to hang myself for a while now. Countless others have done likewise, and I'm no different, not by any measure. And then it goes on from there. It's pretty cheery. <laughs> and if you're going to have somebody talking about hanging themselves, you have to have some fruit involved in the same thing. That's a law. Chekhov said that first. That's why he wrote the cherry orchard. Okay. Look at the time. I'm going to read now from, I've been writing a series of essays uh, from a book that I'm working on, a memoir and essays, I guess is what it might be called. And it's about being um, the product of assimilation. And it's the first nonfiction that I've done, and uh, even though I've been teaching it for a long time. But that's just how education works. Um, this one is called Dispatch from Puerto Nowhere. It's a really long essay. It goes on for, according to long reads, for 25 minutes. Um, but I'm only going to read it and, and torture you for a few minutes. For years, I've been misquoting the late Polish poet Czesław Miłosz without knowing that Miłosz is the one I've been misquoting. I've done this, I'm sure, because I heard someone else misquote Miłosz. I'm pretty sure this person did so without attribution as well. How far back it goes is unknowable, but it's akin to a literary game of telephone that is entirely without consequence or the least bit interesting. What I've been saying is this. When a writer is born into a family, it's the end of the family. I preface, I preface this statement with the safe and inarguable, a writer once said. I used to think Flannery O'Connor said this about writers and families, as it sounds like something she would have said. It isn't very scholarly or academic to say a writer once said, but it gets the point across to students. I trot this misquote out whenever I'm trying to get my students to risk more on the page, whenever I see them pussyfoot around potentially interesting and dangerous material. I use the Milos quote to give them license to let it fly, to destroy themselves and their families. I employ any number of quotes and misquotes when I teach fiction and nonfiction writing to students. The actual quote from Milos is, when a writer is born into a family, the family is finished. I like the misquote better. There's a finality to the misquote that feels apocalyptic whereas the actual quote sounds softer. One can finish a coffee table or a deck. One lover can ask another, did you finish? And it would be considerate, thoughtful. A diamond is finished, as are countless other precious gemstones and earthly items. A family finished can mean they've attained the pinnacle of human achievement. No reason to go any further, to go forth and continue with this mindless multiplying for we have birthed a writer. Of course, it could be an issue with translation too, 
and there's no accounting for that. And I don't know where the quote comes from, if it was in a poem or essay or lecture or what. A Google search doesn't provide this information and I will have to dig deeper. The Lopez side of my family ended on its own and had nothing to do with any writer. I suppose while I am still living and while my sister is likewise, this particular Lopez family has not quite ended, not technically. But as I have no children presently and will not father any in the future, this Lopez line will die with me. My sister has two beautiful children, my niece and nephew. The connection I feel to both is deeper than blood, particularly the blood that runs through my own veins and arteries. Lopez, Capazzoli, Racinidi, De Leon, Colon. Chloe and Jake are Korean. My sister and brother-in-law adopted both of them as infants, and I sometimes joke that they are part Puerto Rican, part Italian too. According to the 2010 U.S. Census, Lopez is the 12th most common surname in the country, with 874,500 people sharing it. I don't know any of these Lopez's personally, though I've met one or two in passing, had conversations, studied expressions, and listened to words, what was between and behind them. I've seen the disappointment and disapproval when another Lopez learns I don't speak Spanish. If there was any hint of kinship, it was once or twice removed and long ago, metaphorical at best, and perhaps only resided in the imagination. Sixto Lopez, my grandfather, was born in 1904 in Mayagüez, Puerto Rico, and died in November 1987 in Brooklyn, New York. In between, he lived and worked in the city, fathered and raised three children, one dying before maturity. He was pop-up to my sister and me, not grandpa or grandfather, and never abuelo or abuelito. I think I remember seeing a photo of my father's older sister, the one who died. The photo was black and white, and the girl was very young, between three and ten, and she had on a frilly dress. She may have been holding hands with my grandmother. I don't know what her name was, what she died from, or when. I do not come from a line of storytellers, and apparently I was never curious enough to ask. It's possible I was curious enough to ask, but no one wanted to talk about it. It's possible I was told these basic facts and have since forgotten them. I don't think this is likely, though. There is so much I don't know about the Lopez side of the family that I'd have had to have suffered some sort of brain injury to forget so much of it. Donald Barthelme said, fragments are the only forms I trust. I'm not sure what constitutes a fragment when it comes to what I know about my family. What's less than half a fragment? What's part of a shard? The family didn't die with my grandfather, per se, nor did it die with my father upon his death ten years later, but it had been as good as dead for years before any of the Lopez's started getting killed off. Families are comprised of narratives like history and novels. If there are no family stories, then the family ceases to exist. 
Joan Didion said, we tell stories in order to live. We can amend it by saying to survive as well. I don't know anything about my grandfather. A few vaporous memories here and there, but nothing that would constitute a narrative and nothing at all definitive. It would be one thing if I'd never met the man, if he were a ghost or legend, if he had disappeared one day when my father was a kid, leaving the family to fend for themselves so he could sail around the world or hitchhike from town to town while working dead-end jobs, or if he were a grifter orchestrating scam after scam, amassing and losing fortunes over and again, and had another family or two in other parts of the country, maybe one in California, the other upstate. Whenever I hear or read about someone describing a father or grandfather like this, it seems romantic and enviable. But I saw my grandfather fairly often until he died in 1987, when I was 16. He was always old, always home. He was always cooking a meal in the kitchen and eating it slowly in the dining room. I shared some of those meals with him and afterwards watched ball games with him. Still, I have no idea who he was. I don't know if he had any brothers or sisters. I don't know anything about his parents, don't know their names or what they did for a living or if they too were native to Puerto Rico or what. I don't know if he left any family behind on the island. Don't know if anyone there ever missed him or wrote letters to him or called him on the telephone. I don't know what he did for a living, though my mother says he was a longshoreman. I thought he was a painter, but I'm not sure why. I think maybe it was because I saw him once in a pair of paint-splattered khakis, something like what Jackson Pollock might look like after a day in the studio. I think maybe he served in the United States Army or Navy, possibly as a cook. I don't know if he had any political affiliation or a particular ideology. I don't know if he voted for Democrats or Republicans or no one at all. I don't remember ever meeting anyone from his family. I think I remember that his American friends called him Eddie. Apparently, Sixto was too much for American tongues. I'm not sure if this is assimilation, if all this was part of it. If to fully assimilate required that one believe the old country was old and left behind for a reason, and we must never speak of it because we are American now, which means we speak perfect English at all times and never Spanish at home or anywhere else. And our history is the revolution and Valley Forge and the Battle of Gettysburg and four score to seven years ago, our fathers who are in heaven do highly resolve that these dead should not have died in vain, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under hamburgers and strip malls and cell phones with peace and justice for all rich people. I'd sit in class and hear some social studies teachers say that we won the revolution, won the Civil War, that we've never lost a war until maybe Vietnam, propaganda like this. They talk about slavery and emancipation and the Indians and Thanksgiving, and I'd look around the room to see if anyone was actually swallowing this. I didn't win the Revolution or the Civil War. I didn't enslave anybody. I didn't steal anyone's land or systematically try to wipe out most of a continent's population. 
I only just got here, along with the rest of my family, from smack dab in the middle of the Caribbean Sea, an island called Puerto Nowhere. I am the product of assimilation, so I don't speak Spanish and know nothing about culture and heritage, not first or second hand anyway. I only know what I've read in books or seen in the movies. That's the kind of Latino I am, how I was made. And then that one goes on. They almost always go on. Okay, then I'm going to finish up with one poem because I know we have some dirty poets uh, here. And everybody's writing all these dirty poems. So I haven't written a poem in a really long time, but time was I used to do once, one or two. And what's cool about this one, this came out um, in a journal called Blackbird in the fall of 2006, apparently. And in that same issue, somebody unearthed a new Sylvia Plath poem that had never been published before. And so my poem was in there with a new Sylvia Plath poem, so I thought that was cool. This one's called Somewhere Other Than Florida. Even before I begin, I should start over. Start with a horse, say, or a toothbrush. Something that takes up space on the earth. Something that would make a noise if you dropped it on the floor, or if it dropped by itself. It shouldn't matter if it is alive or not, if it is a living thing. I have often mistaken a woman for an armoire, a dog for a pitchfork, a glass of beer for a butterfly. The cricket chirps through the night the same as a lawnmower cuts grass. There is no real difference, nor any reason they can't trade jobs tomorrow. The cricket and the lawnmower are both ready for the change. There is no proof it hasn't all been a grand mistake, ours to fix. I propose we reconsider all objects. The old woman on the train reading a magazine, a Japanese beetle crawling across the kitchen floor, an antique desk on the sidewalk outside a laundromat. Try to remember something you have no business remembering, something you've never tried to remember. The creme brulee at that restaurant downtown. The turbulence on the flight to Florida when you were 14. How the passengers whooped and hollered like they were on a roller coaster going fast, going too fast, going somewhere other than Florida. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>